Can you hear me? Can you see me? <laughs> All right, I am going to start up my technology. Technology. Uh, I invite you to use your technology, perhaps, to uh, maybe make your lunch reservations. We may go long today. Uh, just kidding. I will do my best. Thanks. And I've got an analog backup. Thank God for analog. Am I right, Paul Bird? Well, good morning. I'm glad that uh, Stuart tipped off at least the visitors in the room. No, I am not Senior Pastor Stuart Sanders. Yes, Senior Pastor Stuart Sanders is here in the room. No, this is not an audition of any kind, uh, but it is a privilege and an honor to bring the message from God's Word this morning. So if you have your copy of God's Word or you can follow along on the overhead, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of our scripture passage for today. We are going to be in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Praise God for his infallible word. You can be seated. God breathed and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let me pray for us. Father God, we, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful to be able to gather together here and online to plumb the riches of your truth, God, your promises, your warnings, your encouragement. God, your word, the rule by which you direct us on how to glorify you and enjoy you. And as we open your Lord, Father, we pray that by your spirit you would move us to consider how we might apply it to our lives lives that are, by your grace, Father, being transformed daily. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I asked Stuart uh, if he would like for me to continue in our study of the book of John, and he said, you know what? Your call. Any passage you want. So we are taking a brief departure this morning from the upper room on the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, as I felt led to preach from a passage that was uh, and remains instrumental uh, in my walk with the Lord. It has probably been at least a year pre-COVID. I know it was pre-podiumzilla here uh, since I've preached in this church. Uh, so I, I feel confident I'm not going to be repeating myself to too many folks as I share uh, parts of the story of my salvation uh, and the role that this passage played in it. Um, so I was not raised in a Christian home. I remember hearing the gospel in elementary school. And I remember attending uh, a Good News Club, if some of you are familiar with that ministry to kids. Uh, and then my dad being in the Navy, we moved. Um, but not before, on the last day of fifth grade, I was handed a little green uh, Gideon's New Testament and Psalms. I don't know if anybody still gets these in the public school after you get out of fifth grade. But uh, I remember unpacking that Bible when we got to our new house in Slidell, Louisiana. Uh, but, and I, I wanted to learn more about this God I'd been hearing about. Um, 
So I started at the beginning of this little book, in the book of Matthew. If you're familiar, Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus, beginning with Abraham. So a lot of begats, a lot of unpronounceable names, uh, and I, uh, I knew that um, I was never going to remember all of those characters. So I quit reading. And without any Christian fellowship or discipleship, I lived my life as an unbeliever, a pretty rebellious unbeliever. And it didn't help uh, that when my parents divorced, I decided, well, you know, if they don't have to play by the rules, neither do I. And I proceeded to do what I wanted, when I wanted, uh, with very little regard for my family uh, or the law, to be honest. I quit college after a couple years and moved to the beach to work, work. But finally decided uh, I needed to get back to college. I needed to get a degree if, if I didn't want to live in a dumpy trailer and fish for my dinner for the rest of my life. So uh, it was there uh, during my second go-around at college at the University of North Texas uh, that God moved in my life and revealed himself to me in a way that was undeniable and brought me to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the most pivotal points in that journey was a sermon on this passage in Romans at Denton Bible Church. So we are kind of parachuting into the middle of this book, uh, and I'd what I'd like to do is catch you up on what the Apostle Paul has been sharing with his readers up to this point. It's actually really simple, uh, and at the same time extremely profound, uh, simply the gospel. Paul is sharing uh, the gospel. He shares what we consider to be the key verse in this letter in chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we see this in the book of Acts and elsewhere, that not only is Paul not ashamed of the gospel, in Greek, euangelion, literally good news, but it is his life. He endures imprisonment, shipwreck, Beatings to share this good news with everyone that God puts in his path. And he's passionate about getting this good news to these hearers in Rome because they, like us, need this good news. Paul goes on to lay out what this good news is and why we need it. He tells his readers about who God is, a holy and righteous God in whose presence sin cannot stand. And he tells us about who we are, uh, who man is, ungodly, unrighteous, suppressing the truth, and without excuse, because God is evident to all. He's revealed himself to all, his existence and his power through creation. And even though we knew God, we rebelled and we chose our own path, exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. He says in verse one, in chapter one, verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree 
that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That, my friends, is us. That is mankind in his natural state. In our natural state, we are not basically good. We don't uh, start life at neutral. Right? God's word is clear on this and throughout scripture. Um, we don't, by our actions, uh, collect debits or credits on some ledger of goodness or righteousness. No, we are born sinful. And there's no way to right that ship ourselves. There's no way to appease God's holy sense of justice on our own and by our works. We're considered guilty before him. Rebels, enemies, deserving of his wrath, deserving of his judgment that will certainly come. And although we see evil persist in this world, this week, every week, and we see unrepentant sinners prosper, Paul reminds his readers that we're not to mistake God's patience for his approval. Judgment day is coming, and fallen mankind is guilty and without excuse before a holy, just, and righteous God. Thank God that Paul doesn't end his letter there. In chapter 3, verse 21, Paul now shares the good news. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul says, yes, we are all guilty and deserving of God's wrath, but instead of punishing us, he lays his punishment on God the Son. On the cross, the sinless Christ is my propitiation, my substitute, taking on what I rightfully deserve to offer me his righteousness before God, which I do not deserve, but is the only way that I can be redeemed, can be reconciled in my relationship to a holy God who cannot bear the presence of my sin. Because of what Christ does on the cross, it's forgiven. It's paid for on the cross. And considering the alternative, that is indeed very good news. Also, good news, we are now caught up uh, and ready to dive into our passage. So, chapter 6, given what we now know about who God is, who we are, what sin is, its penalty, who Christ is, what he did for us, and how we receive it by faith, by believing it, Paul now asks a pretty apparent question, one that still comes up today from people sincerely curious, uh, as well as people who would look to discredit the gospel. He says in verse 1, Given all that I've just told you, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
Paul uses this rhetorical device elsewhere in Romans. He's asking a question himself that challenges what he's trying to communicate in order to refute it himself. It's like Paul saying, I know what you're thinking. I just told you this story about how God the Father, holy and righteous, sends God the Son, equally holy and righteous, with no guilt whatsoever, to bear the punishment for my sin. And then by simply believing this, by having faith that this Jesus was the promised Christ and that his death on the cross pays the penalty for my sin, and now I am completely absolved before God. And there is nothing I can do to leave that standing because there is nothing that I did to earn it. If that's true, and that demonstrates the immeasurable grace of God, why don't I just keep on sinning? So that God gets even more opportunity to show off his amazing grace. Win-win. Having asked the question himself, Paul also answers it. By no means. Meganoito is the Greek. Very loose translations include, heck no. Are you crazy? That's absurd. It's a very strong negative. Paul says, no, that's not how this works. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's absurd. Because when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, something fundamental about us is changed. Something so core to our identity changes when we place our faith in Jesus Christ that it changes everything. We died to sin. That description that Paul gave of the natural state of mankind, that no longer defines us. Paul uses the imagery of life and death. <clears throat> we died to that way of life. We have been reconciled to God, redeemed, rescued, delivered, called out of a kingdom of darkness, death and sin and despair and slavery ruled by Satan, and called into the kingdom of light and life and love, joy, hope, freedom, the kingdom of God for eternity as his sons and daughters. We have been reborn, made new, made whole. Why would we live as if we were citizens of that other kingdom? Why would we deny our true identity? Why would we who have been given eternal life play dead. It's absurd. But it happens, right? We forget who we are at times. The things of this world, um, the temptations by the ruler of this world, our own patterns of sin that we continue to struggle with all conspire to keep us imprisoned in a realm that we've been set free from. The best image I've heard, and maybe you've heard it too, is that of a jail cell on death row that we've been set free from. We've been pardoned. We've been declared not guilty. We've been set free. Our record has been expunged. The cell door is wide open. and We have the freedom to get up off our bunk and walk out that door right into a new life that's waiting for us. But that tiny, dingy cell has become familiar to us. And there's some level of comfort in familiarity especially considering the fact that in this metaphor, we've never known anything other than prison life up to the point that we've been set free. We know the prison rules. We know how to get by and get along, and there's comfort 
in that familiarity because we understand it. But it's still a prison. It's still death row. It takes faith in the one who set us free, the one who calls us out of that cell to have the courage to live as free men and women. Courage to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, as Paul calls us to in Ephesians 4.1. He set us free, and he calls us to come out of that cell and live, not as prisoners of darkness, but as freed men and women, free citizens in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of life, the kingdom of God. Paul goes on to use imagery of baptism to make his point in verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We know that by the date of Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, this practice of baptism, the sacrament that we practice today and all its various forms, uh, was familiar to the Roman Christians. And that's what Paul's referring to here. Back then, it was most likely exclusively by immersion, But regardless, it's that outward expression of an inward decision of faith now being publicly declared as a believer, identifying with the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Paul says, do you not know, because you do, that when we profess our faith in Christ, we identify with his death on the cross and accept for ourselves the efficacy of that death as punishment for our sins. I didn't have to experience that horrific death, but by faith, I identify with his as a substitute on the cross, a substitute worthy to pay for my sin because he had none. Paul says, you get that part, right? And in that church pew in college, I got that part. I'd been attending church for several weeks, and uh, by this point, I got that part. Uh, Man, that was awesome, because I had made some pretty dumb mistakes. And to know that I was forgiven, that God could forgive me and welcome me into his family, that was huge. But it was this next part that really impacted me that Sunday night. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This was my introduction to the concepts of justification and sanctification and how inseparable those are. Justification, being justified before God, being declared not guilty for our sin, that moment in time when we are instantly and eternally rescued from the kingdom of darkness and the penalty of eternal separation from God and granted eternal life in his presence, given the Holy Spirit as a pledge of that provocation. And sanctification, being sanctified by God, being set apart, being made holy, that ongoing process of being conformed to the image of Christ. God justifies us, and in doing so, welcomes us into his kingdom, his son, his grace. Through faith, we've been made clean by the work of Jesus Christ. But God doesn't stop there. We don't keel over on the spot and God take us home. No, God loves us too much to leave us unchanged. So he changes us 
and he does this for us. We respond by faith because justification and sanctification aren't two completely different propositions. And that's the whole point of Paul's argument here. It's not like God says, hey, here's this prize, this gift called justification. It's yours, and it's free. It's your ticket to heaven. Now you go on, have a great life, and we'll see you when you get here. No. And he doesn't say, there's this bonus round that you can play called sanctification, but you're going to have to work a little bit for that one. No, our, our salvation is it's holistic. God saved us justification. God is saving us sanctification. And it's not that one is by faith and the other is by works. Salvation by God is always, has always been by grace through faith. We're called to trust and obey. We obey because we trust. We obey because we trust that God's promises are assured. They're true. They're truer than anything else we know to be true because God is truth. We obey because we trust that God loves us and that the pursuit of him is the pursuit of everything that is worthy of pursuit. True life, true beauty, true goodness, unlike the counterfeits that this world will hold up to us as an alternative. We obey because we love him. We love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4:19 and he died for us in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we might walk in newness of life. Reuben here. <laughs> You're good. There's a reason God saves us. There's a reason God saved me, and it didn't, it didn't have anything to do with me. He has a plan for my life. He has a plan for your life, a plan that will ultimately bring him glory. And I get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that. And I desperately needed to hear that second part back in college. I think we all desperately need to be reminded of that truth, that God loves us. And it's so evident on the cross but he loves us too much to leave us unchanged. Good Friday is good. It's very good. But it doesn't mean a lot without Easter morning. Our debt has been paid. Our record has been expunged. The cell door has been open, and we're called to walk out and walk into newness of life. That word walk is used a lot in the Bible. Specifically in the New Testament, it carries this meaning to follow a certain course of life or to conduct oneself in a certain way. And the way Paul and John use that verb, it can be translated to live. That we might live in newness of life. Paul and John call us to walk or live in other ways. 2 Corinthians 5-7, Paul says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. We live by faith. We're saved by faith. We're sanctified by faith. Galatians 5.16, again, Paul. But I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Live by the Spirit. God doesn't leave us alone in this effort. He's given us His Spirit, our comforter, our counselor, to encourage us, to console us, to convict us when necessary, to point us to Christ. And John, in 1 John 1, 6 and 7, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in it, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. To live our lives in darkness, in sin, is to live a lie. And if we profess to be saved, to know God, yet we are consistently living in unrepentant sin, it's a fair question to ask if we're truly saved. And don't misunderstand me. The process of sanctification is never fully complete, this side of heaven. Our mission as Christians, as Christ followers, is not perfection. That's Christ. Ours is perseverance. Knowing his will, knowing his commands, knowing his word, knowing his fellowship, trusting him, obeying him to the best of our ability, and keeping short accounts with him when we don't. Humbly coming before God in repentance, being grieved by our sin, desiring the abundant life that he offers as we align our lives with his will. That's our mission. Perseverance. We will stumble, we'll fall, we'll make a mess of our lives and our relationships, but in those moments we draw near to God in humility and gratitude and we persevere because we know by faith that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Our salvation beginning to end is assured. And that looks a little goofy for us, right? If you picture a graph, fame and holiness from salvation, it's going to be an upward trend. We are being conformed to the image of Christ, but it's going to look a little like this. It's not a straight-line graph, if that helps. I'll leave you with a spiritual life hack from the world of motorcycling. <laughs> I spend roughly half of my time commuting on a motorcycle. Unless I have to tow people or a dog or a bunch of stuff, uh, or there's ice on the road or it's north of 95 degrees, I prefer to be on a motorcycle. BK doesn't like that. Now, I get it. It's dangerous. Uh, no matter how safe I am, physics is physics, and in a crash, I likely lose. So I take safety really seriously. And everything that I can control and learn about safe motorcycle riding, I do. And one thing I learned is about a phenomenon known as target fixation. I'm sure this applies to other driving and cycling situations, probably a plane too, I don't know. Uh, the concept is this, you know, with the widespread use of helmet cams, um, motorcycle safety and training organizations are finding that in a lot of wrecks, an obstacle is introduced, whether that's debris on the road or a car pulling out in front of you unexpectedly. And the most natural thing for a rider to do when presented with an obstacle is to fixate on that obstacle. When our focus is fixed on that obstacle for those precious few seconds, that's likely where the bike's gonna go. We know there's an escape route. We know 
uh, and we're trying to urge our body toward it out of our peripheral vision, but our focus is on that obstacle. When your eyes are fixated on it and your body, and consequently your motorcycle is going to follow right into that obstacle. And that's what happens. And the solution, they say, is as soon as you recognize that obstacle, force yourself to immediately look for the escape route. Focus on that. Even better, be thinking about those escape routes so that when the obstacle does appear, and it will almost every single ride, your focus will be on the way out, the way to life. And we can't deny the obstacles, the temptations we face on a daily basis in our walks with Christ. But I think walking in newness of life is a proactive undertaking. Yes, there's going to be setbacks and temptations and all sorts of obstacles competing for our focus. And we don't need to put our head in the sand and pretend they don't exist. We acknowledge them. But if we can immediately turn our attention to the escape route, the way of life, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, focusing our attention on what is true and good and beautiful, I think we set ourselves up for success by God's grace. Or better yet, make him a more constant focus of our thoughts all the time. One of my favorite, most helpful commands in Scripture is Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Yes, we resist the devil. We flee from temptation. Yes, we walk out of that cell uh, from our, of our former lives in, from the realm of darkness. But we run to Jesus. We run into the arms of our Heavenly Father. That's our focus. That's our mission. That is true and abundant life. And by God's grace, it is ours for the taking. Listen, my life didn't completely change after that night in college, hearing that sermon, I struggled. I continue to struggle with selfishness, with anger, with pride. God is so patient with me. And I see that as I walk by faith in a manner worthy of my calling, he gives me glimpses of what it means to truly live. As I persevere, he gives me glimpses of what I was saved for, the life that I was saved to. Glimpses of how he might receive the glory in the life of a sinner like me, like you. May we not settle for life in a jail cell when the door's wide open and God beckons us to walk in newness of life. Paul was gracious enough uh, to reach out to me this week and ask if there was a favorite hymn that I'd like included in the worship set today. And I've got a few, uh, but I chose Be Thou My Vision. Because that's my prayer, that God would be my constant vision, the greatest object of my affection, that my life would be less marked by running from a shameful past and more by a constant pursuit of Jesus. And at times, that is a daily request. And your story is different than mine. All of our stories are different, but they all matter because you all matter to God. God demonstrated how much you matter to him on the cross. 
He is demonstrating daily how much you matter to him as he conforms you to the image of Christ. God calls us to trust and obey and enjoy the new life he's given us. So what does walking, living in newness of life look like for you? What beliefs about who God is, what sin is, who Christ is, and who you are now in Christ need to be examined? What jailhouse rules are we still living by? What patterns of sin are we still a little too comfortable with? What would it look like to walk, to live in a manner worthy of our calling as sons and daughters of God, as kingdom citizens? We talked about our identification with Christ through the sacrament of baptism a little today. The other sacrament or ceremony that we are called to participate in as believers is communion or the Lord's table. Oh, it's here. Oh, good. <laughs> Let me check that. This sacrament was established in Scripture for us as a regular reminder, lest we forget what our Lord did for us on the cross. We celebrate it weekly here at Faith Bible Church as an opportunity to examine our hearts, to thank God for his amazing grace, to confess any sin, and just to praise him for his power and his goodness. And I'll ask the men uh, to come forward who are going to pass out the elements. And as I do, I want to invite you to do just that. We don't require that you be a member of Faith Bible Church to participate, but rather a member of God's universal church, having placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's two little cups there. Uh, the bottom one has bread in it. If you will hold on to those once you get them, I will pray for us and we'll partake of the elements together.